Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B podcast. I'm Alex from X-Growth. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out about their successes, fails, and what's working for them in the market. If you enjoy the episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the pod with a friend. And of course, make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack to connect with our members. That's enough from me. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hola with X-Growth. And today I'm talking to Jamie Kahn's Chief Strategy Officer at Fluent Commerce about how to set up and go about creating a partner-led strategy for your organization. It's a, it's a really important topic and a lot of organizations think about it where they're developing their three methods of going to market, which is inbound, outbound, and partnership, and that's one of the main pillars. So on that note, let's dive in. Jamie, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me, Shaheen. Nice to be here. Absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. At the very beginning, I want, to, I want us to define the, the, the partner-led strategy, the, 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 the concept behind PLS, because I think, you know, partner marketing or, or, or partnership is, I feel, a little bit of a not blunt approach, but people have their own definitions, which is not necessarily accurate, especially if someone is new into the space. How do you go about, what do you mean by, by partner-led strategy? I think you're right. I think that adding partner to a lot of different disciplines within a business is commonly what's done. So partner marketing, partner sales, partner delivery, but, but truly partner-led strategies need to be driven from your own business strategy. Why, why would you seek to partner with somebody? And I, ca- I can't speak for everybody, but my number one reason is that our business can focus on the things that we're very good at and that we can see complementarity in partnerships in certain aspects of our business. So we want to focus on delivering SaaS software, not so much in the delivery of services in support of that SaaS software in terms of delivery. So so we can focus on something, somebody else's business that's very focused on a complementary aspect of that. And for me, it's about ensuring that the whole business is bought into that. So if we're going to strategically be partner-led, that's not just about engaging on a sales activity or engaging around particular software delivery mechanisms. It's about bringing the whole business on board. So the way in which we build product, the way in which we fund our business to in order in order for us to, to exist and the expectations that our venture partners have with us, the way in which we recruit people, the, the attitudes that we hire for. It needs to permeate every aspect of the business, and and that really only comes with with a kind of universal buy-in to to a business being partner-led, not just an activity or a particular act, uh, action. Got it. That's that's interesting. And, and I want there are a couple of things that you brought up there that I want to dig into a little bit more. But before doing that, I first want to explore and talk to you if you could talk to us a little bit about what are, what do you think some of the misconceptions that people and organizations have towards a partner-led strategy, a partner-led growth, and in partnership in general? I think, that, I think the first and biggest one is that it's perceived to be easy, you know, an easy way to amplify your message or an easy way to see another revenue channel, that it's 
that it's cheap and that you can outsource sales or marketing or, or or delivery to another organization and kind of forget about that. I think it's quite the opposite of that. I think it, oftentimes it's it costs a significant amount more than you might expect, but that the returns justify that. And that is amplified, and that problem is exacerbated where it's just a divisional approach. So somebody within sales says, right, we're going to have a partner sales channel, go off and make that happen, without you know those things I was talking about before, about all the rest of the business being bought in and prepared and in support of that. It's far from easy. It's, it's doomed to failure. The other, I think, is that we we, we sometimes become very myopic in our understanding of our own business. And we assume that alignment with others will will happen naturally, that others will understand and buy into our desires and our direction and our strategy. It takes an awful lot to, to get folks external to your own business to understand your raison d'etre and the way that you do things. And I think underestimating the amount of communication and the amount of relationship building and sharing of vision, sharing of strategy that needs to be done so that you can effectively collaborate is, um, uh, yeah, it's underdone, I think. Yeah, and underestimated. I, I've, I've, I've done this, mis- made this mistake where I remember we had in our own agency very early days, but you know we had a we had a plan, and we we're like, "Hey, this is awesome! We just reach out to every company that does this, and we're telling them how we can complement their work, and they're going to be like referring work to us left and right, and you know we'll even give them a percentage of the work." That never happened. That was not. Uh, that was. I, I think I I had the same perception that you talked about that a lot of organizations have about partnership. And I was like, this is going to be easy. No problem. No brainer. Uh, and, uh, and boom comes down the, uh, the, the, the whole thing in, in, in a, in a snap. And it can be, it can be quite confronting, I think, right? Because the assumption that, that I'll go with the, the positive assumption is that, you know, thought went into that process. You genu- genuinely believe in the outcome that you can foresee. You have others' interests at heart. You can see a win-win or a uh, yeah, mutually beneficial uh, outcome there. And and it can be quite disheartening when it doesn't have the traction that you you just know it should have. So that focus on how you communicate it and how you share and how you get people to buy in, I think is important because most of these things are conceived of out of best intentions and, and with good thought, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the starting point. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of if, if an organization, if a leader wants to get going, get started with a partner-led strategy, where should they begin? Are you senior, le- senior leadership group? It has to be driven out of your business strategy. I, I think I think fundamentally, organizations need to focus and need to have their goals for their for their organization. Identifying the areas that are important within your ecosystem within your industry but that aren't necessarily focuses of yours gives you a good starting point so as i said earlier ours is on the development and sales and support of SaaS software whereas running projects and implementing software is a business of our partners so so identifying areas that are core to to you 
and and identifying areas that aren't and don't necessarily benefit your your long-term business objectives but using your understanding of the market to see where there's complementary companies that can work with you it's it's not like we're inventing the wheel here right software companies have worked with services partners for for a very long time but but identifying the nature of them so first of all starting in those those big chunks does our funding model and does our expected um, outcome lenders towards a particular business model so let's focus on that and let's seek support where it doesn't necessarily so from there you can you can then work down into you know what the expected outcomes might be looking at how you might measure those and then then starting small you know pick a region pick a partner test and be really prepared to to adapt quickly i mean i i copped it within my organization a little bit for having you know, what could be perceived as a slightly disorganized uh, division in, in channel and alliances when we first started. But I'd argue that that was by design. I didn't want to spend an awful long time putting together a glossy, complex partner program with tiers and fees and rewards. I wanted to test and learn and adapt really quickly. And we didn't get it all right to start with. You know, we we didn't necessarily get the incentive model correct to start with. So we were able to adjust that without having signed a ton of people up to it on long-term contracts or anything like that. So I think being being prepared to adapt, and that really boils down to your organizational culture is, are you ready to test, learn, and adapt? And the people that, that you task with it. So we had a great deal of focus on it. So we, we formed a channel and alliances team outside of sales and marketing. So we were able to take input from all the other divisions, take input from our partners. We started off with two partners and learned about how they operated and how that would work with our teams and the things that we needed to do internally if we were going to go and try and support more partners. And we were then able to grow and roll out regionally and uh, to a much wider scale. But we we were prepared. Uh, we had folks in our organization who were very experienced in this space. So we weren't completely winging it. Um, we had experience. So we, we were making informed decisions about what we did, but we didn't try to be too grandiose or to set everything up in a very complex manner up front. Got it. So don't complicate it in the, in the early days and keep it simple so you can test as much as possible. What were some of the learnings from the figuring out the incentivization structure? We're still doing it, and I think we should always be doing it and reassessing. For some folks, it's quite interesting. We're, we're always dealing with humans, and, and I think the key is to ensure that you're incentivizing the humans, not the corporation. Corporations don't really show appreciation particularly well. They, they don't respond. They don't, they're not inspired by but the humans within those corporations are inspired by things and respond with emotion. Um, so ensuring that you know, if, if, if the incentive is a financial incentive or a commercial incentive to the greatest extent you can ensure that that trickles down to the individuals that you work with within the organization. Yeah, we saw that within one of the organizations that we were working with, we paid a referral fee for, for opportunity that they brought to us. The individuals who we were working with within the organization were unaffected by that one way or another. So while you think you may be incentivizing behavior, you're not always incentivizing the behavior with the folks you actually want to work with. We see far far greater response from engagement with and bringing folks into our fold, sharing information with them, sharing events with them, inviting them to participate in in webinars, inviting them to speak to our people internally and share their, their personal stories with us. So being very adaptive, being 
an individualizer in terms of the way in which you you, you work with people. So others, it's really about their standing within the community. There, there are folks who are highly motivated by being called the preferred partner for a particular region, which is fine if it's genuine. So having some kind of aspirational process that folks can identify with, I think works works very well. Now, none of none of that works unless you have a truly valid and valuable business proposition. So we're talking about you know how we optimize and how we incentivize folks, but fundamentally, we need to understand the nature of our partners' businesses and ensure that whatever processes we put in place and whatever incentives we put in place, we're supporting their business. So we, we walk in their shoes and we understand um, what their motivations are. Got it. Got it. We've talked about this a little bit, but and, and you've touched on some, a couple of points, but is there anything else that it's not so obvious about the product-led strategy but it's something that is is very crucial for leaders to get, take into consideration. I think I think both within the strategy, but also within the engagement with partners, trust is the number one commodity. And we're often very good at telling people what we're very good at. I mean, collectively as a uh, as a species, I have seen just fantastic increases in the amount of trust by being really transparent about the things we're not good at. So we're not trying to sell to our partners or oversell to our partners, if we expose our weaknesses to them, what has happened is that they've found ways to compensate for those weaknesses in the partnership, as opposed to seeing us in a in a less favorable light or being underwhelmed by whatever that particular aspect of us is. Those with whom we have a genuine relationship have really stepped up in that regard. And that's something that takes some take some guts to do sometimes. We we don't like to expose our weaknesses typically. It has a really, really strongly positive um, positive impact. Another one, look, unless you're at a, such a scale where it's absolutely necessary, we took a decision very early to try and carve out areas, both within ecosystems and within geographies, that individual partners could own. Now, it wasn't an exclusivity arrangement, but we sought to avoid creating direct competition within our partner network. So it might be that within a particular technology ecosystem in a particular region, we could set up and empower a partner to succeed within that area rather than put them immediately pitched into competition against somebody else that did something very, very similar to them. There's a few benefits to that. One is that you can manage a smaller number of partners and that you can, in the early stages, and this is particularly when you're establishing yourselves uh, or establishing the strategy and building these partnerships, is that you give them a high degree of success, a higher chance of winning and less competition within that particular area. So I think that kind of that diversity of partner versus competition within within a particular area, and that obviously can't last forever. And it's not about trying to trying to change market dynamics but it's where you've got the capacity to handle three partners in a country why not find three that have their own individual brilliances rather than find three that look the same and have them all compete over everything got it yeah that's that's very interesting and and i think that last point comes ties back into trust right because i think a lot of organizations 
they, you know, they might partner up with uh, a vendor and they will be like, you know, okay, cool, we partner up, but uh, the, you know, they, they are looking after their own interests. So they're probably going to, if, if a client comes in, they're probably going to put us next to some other competitors. They're going to bring our price down on, on other things as well. And that really shatters that and, and damages that trust between the two organizations. So that's, that's a very interesting, interesting point. Well, and, and, and particularly in that one that you, you just said, right? So sorry to interrupt, but I think I'd, I'd like to explore that one just a little bit further, right? So so that notion of, thanks, I like your software, now put three implementation partners forward to us and we'll choose one. It's a, it's a request that we hear frequently, we've heard forever. I don't subscribe to that approach one bit. I think it's the responsibility of the salesperson, the channel manager, whomever it is that's leading the engagement with, with a client is to understand their business well enough and to understand their objectives and their desired outcomes well enough that that you can make a recommendation and that you can put forward a preferred. Now, that doesn't mean you have to coerce them into using them if they really need to have alternatives. But I think you should be able to articulate to them the reasons why. And those should be well considered and they should match your client's expectations. And, and that that helps you manage that dynamics and that, uh, that list of partners or the mix of partners that you have in any particular market. I want to change the gear a little bit and talk about geographies, different geographies. One of the things that a lot of organizations think about when they start thinking about partnership is, hey, we want to, we want to expand to that new geography. We want to expand to the US, we want to expand to UK, Singapore, Indonesia, whatever, you name it, Japan. And therefore, we need to find a partner there to kind of maybe do the selling for us, whatever it is, whatever their justification is in order to kind of find a partner in a new geography. How should, in your opinion, how should leaders think about different geographies when it comes to a partner-led uh, strategy? We've tried a couple of different ways over, over a couple of different companies that I've worked for. I found it very hard to expand into a new geography that I'm not familiar with or our organization is not familiar with just by recruiting a local partner in that area. We find it both internally and externally very challenging to make sure that we have alignment on messaging, support and access to the right content to enable our people and our partners. And in order to overcome that, we make investments in people in the regions in which we operate. So to bring on a a new partner in a region, that doesn't take just having a partner manager sitting on the other side of the world, checking in with them every now and again. We have sales, pre-sales, marketing, expert services, channel support for new partners in new regions. So we typically partner with folks that are operating in geographies that we go into. Now, conversely, I have historically recruited partners in markets that we weren't present. And I guess I uh, in my misconceptions earlier on about you know thinking it's easy is maybe I was a little naive earlier in my career to think that I had an easy way to get into let's say Latin America that I could just recruit a partner in Latin America and the dollars would come rolling in as long as we gave them a sales presentation sent them back in they knew their market you know that they'd be sending orders before we knew it certainly doesn't happen that way so I, I think I think the key when you're looking at new geographies is Different categories will be different, but but for us and in my experience, where we invest ourselves, we build a very strong partner strategy. I'm aware of successes, but I haven't personally had them where where I've asked the partner to establish a new market for me. I think it's very difficult. 
And what they can be very valuable in doing in markets that you're going into that you're not particularly familiar with is that they can they can give you a great deal of insight around cultural expectations, around business practice expectations, pricing and market expectations. So I, I truly believe that entering into a new geography requires more support than just the partner. But I think partners are an essential component of that mix of moving into a new geography. They undoubtedly will know more than you do about that market. And being transparent, establishing trust with them means you'll be able to learn from them. You can help them by providing new revenue streams to them, and they can help you in a better market understanding. And that that symbiosis, I think, works very, very well. We would never enter a new market without as a first priority, establishing a partner network in that geography. Do you approach your first partner in a geography differently than, you know, let's say future partners? I think the, uh, it's a good question, actually. I mean, we'd like to think that we treat everybody equally. And and I think we do. No, no. I mean, the, the reason I ask this, right, I, the reason I ask this is because, you know, maybe the, the job that partner number one has is a lot harder than partner number five in that geography, right? And, and I'm not saying that it's it's about you're special, you're not special. You know, I'm curious from that standpoint of thinking, you know, we have no brand presence, nobody knows us, and these guys have got to lift a really heavy rock versus, you know, uh, partner number 20 who's entering into a space that people know our brand and all that stuff. So that, that's that's where my question comes from, not not from a, you know, you're special, you're not special kind of perspective. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. And I think certainly those roles are different. Market entry versus joining an already established market is a very different dynamic for a partner and does require a different attitude and investment from from partners. So certainly, yeah, when we're messaging that and when we're, we're approaching, the key is for me in trying to remove as many of the obstructions as possible for our business and our partner's business to be successful. Relationship and trust takes you quite a long way in that. So we we have sought and we've managed to do very successfully is to hire folks to, to manage those relationships, which are historical and long term. So being able to go into a new market with a partner that somebody in my team has worked with before at a prior organization yeah, allows us to remove some of the risk of a new relationship and we can then put more focus into supporting them in that lifting the heavy rock, as you describe it, of entering into a new market. It's really hard. Um, if you're doing that with somebody you've never met before and you're trading just off a business value proposition, I think it's a tough one to get over the line because a new partnership requires a great deal of investment from the other side. We try to think as much as possible, and I'm trying to encourage my team to think as much as possible from that partner's point of view. So empathy is the number one trait that we hire for is how do I understand the motivations of the partner and the challenges of the partner and the competing interests of the partner and so forth? Because really, that's what's going to affect the success of that relationship, and particularly where partnerships are so key to our market entries, and we've really got to understand that. So yes, we do treat them differently. The, the expectations on them are significant, but we end up being you know, very fair and consistent across the, across the network of partners. Across the board. Yeah, got it. Got it. Makes sense. I guess the last thing that I want to touch on, and we've, we've talked about a lot of these, and that's common mistakes that people make, right? We talked about not being included, not, not 
having a, fo- a strategic focus on on partnerships. We talked about having a a very optimistic view to partnerships and thinking that it's, it's little work and and it's it's all going to turn out okay. Are there any other common mistakes that you see people make? You see leaders, you see partnership VPs or or directors make? The classic that I would go to there, I think that we haven't really talked about so far is is the potential for channel conflict. And what I mean by that is have sales channels, both with and via partners and direct, and have those folks competing over the same deals in the same clients. I've seen it happen, particularly at the big software companies frequently. It it then you know introduces lack of collaboration within those organizations, uh, lack of information sharing, which ultimately doesn't benefit the selling company or the client for that matter. So understanding the potential for and the risks of channel conflict and doing something to mitigate that, being very clear with it, being very open, honest, and transparent with your own staff and also with partners as to how that looks. We've I've spent some time in, in big software companies. My CEO spent some time in big software companies. We've we've hopefully learned the things that we aren't that enamored with when we uh, when we get to design these policies within our org- own organization. So we've done everything within our power to avoid creating any of those channel conflicts. I think I think that's that's one of the biggest ones, and and it really does come from that top down entire company strategy around partnerships as opposed to it just being a um a sales uh, sales activity i think the other one's just trying to do too much too fast there's a great deal of investment in relationship in tweaking messaging for a particular market thinking that you can create a program and then just roll it out quickly and widely and for it to be successful based off its intrinsic benefits i think is is folly we talked a little bit about that before but the very nature of a of a, of a partnership of two parties coming together to collaborate to create to to innovate and to build something that has has value greater than the sum of its parts have a multiplicative effect is is nuanced requires humans in my view to collaborate and to understand and to have empathy for each other's point of view and to really to really embrace that and and that i think is is the is the fun in partnerships that's the real joy giving bit of it is that you can be creative now you can you can create programs and systems on top of that but but you've got to create something to start with and to think that you can do that without interaction and that you can do it immediately at large scale, I, I don't get that personally. So I think I think that trying to do too much too quickly can can be the undoing of some really great ideas. Yeah, prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. <laughs> it's uh, you yep. got you got to do that. I love it, uh, Jamie. This is this is this is awesome. Now, in the last part, I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. Okay, mm-hmm. um, we'll go through these really quick and uh, and and smash through them before we wrap up. So. The first question I want to ask you is what is one resource, it could be anything, it could be a book, a blog, a podcast, whatever it is, that has fundamentally changed the way you work or live? This is the book that I have recommended to the most people, friends, family, colleagues, partners. Uh, I had the, the absolute privilege of hearing its author speak uh, at a sales kickoff event. So there's a guy called Mike Mullane. He's a NASA pilot ex-Navy Navy pilot, and he wrote a book called Riding Rockets. The concept at the core of Riding Rockets is something called the normalization of deviancy. 
the the theme of the book focuses around the Challenger disaster, where sadly four astronauts lost their lives, and it boiled down to a failed O-ring on one of the the boosters. The reason I find it so interesting is it's a phenomenal story. So if you don't want to apply a business context to it at all, it's incredibly insightful. And if you want to apply a business context to it, accepting things that are just not quite right eventually leads to disaster. So seeing something that you could fix, but you decide not to fix, you do that enough, it, 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 will, um, it will come back to haunt you. So that one's fantastic. I highly recommend everyone gives it a read. It's, um, it's very approachable, but really insightful also. We'll definitely check that out. Thanks for that. There's okay. a more fun one. Um, yeah, Joe, Smith, on. Hit me. Joe Smith's TED Talk on how we're all using paper towels incorrectly. Oh, I've seen that one. That's so good. <laughs> now, the reason I say that is it's probably the simplest of TED Talks you'll ever listen to, but I find myself applying it more frequently than I would ever have imagined that I had. It's almost a challenge now to see how small a piece of paper I can use to dry my hands. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to it. Yeah, I love that one. If you could give only one advice to, to, to B2B leaders, right, who might be involved in partnership, might be in sales and marketing, but B2B leaders, what would that be? Treat it like one of your personal relationships. Put the same amount of care, love, affection, consideration into it as you do in one of your personal relationships. No tricks, no gimmicks, no strange tactics. If you couldn't get away with it in your home life you shouldn't be even trying it in business love it last one what's something that excites you about b2b today the opportunity that's been presented to us over the last little while to to find another way to interact with each other to to use zoom more frequently to interact via digital and um, while we haven't had in person now in person is coming back the thing that really excites me about it is that we've got more sophisticated in the way that we interact with each other one size most certainly does not fit all We'll be much more considerate, I think, of our time, our colleagues' time, our partners' time, the environment, than just hopping on a plane to go see somebody because that's how you do business. We'll be, we'll be better at using Zoom at the right time, using digital and, and social at the right time and going and seeing people at the right time. So I'm really, I'm really interested to see how, how we all adapt to that. That, that mix of different communications and relationship development uh, techniques. I'm really excited to see how that plays out. I love it. Yeah, I, I had this experience very recently where, uh, where somebody who's going to pitch something uh, said, oh, no problem, I'll come to your office and I'll, I'll meet you. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I, just, let's do a 30-minute Zoom call. Uh, I don't want to lose control of of how long you're going to sit there and all that stuff. So I, I, you're, you're, you're completely right. And it's going to be fascinating what that balance is going to look like and then how that's going to take shape. But Jamie, on that note, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the pod. This has been a quite fun and, uh, and very insightful conversation. So really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Shane. It really has. So uh, pleasure. This episode of Gross Connie was produced by Alexander Hipwell. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing and music also by Alexander Hipwell. Special thanks to Tina Wabe and Rod Hoda. We couldn't make the show without you. The show is hosted by Shaheen Hoda. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or share a pod with a friend. 
If you'd like to connect with the members of Growth Colony, join our free Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks again for all the support and looking forward to seeing you in the next one. This podcast is brought to you by Xgrowth, an account-based marketing agency with a strong specialization in the APAC market. If you're starting to roll out an account-based marketing initiative in your firm or looking to take your current program to the next level, whether it's one-to-one, one-to-few, or one-to-many, don't try to do it all alone. Chat with the ABM experts at Xgrowth to see how they can help you both on strategy and execution of your next ABM campaign. To find out more, head to www.xgrowth.com.au. That's www.xgrowth.com.au.